Now it is. Okay. You got it? We, when, we, when we chant the Govinda prayer during the offering of the Artsy, there's an extraordinary story behind this prayer. Let me see if I can give you even a quasi-brief explanation of the story behind this prayer. Souls come in two general categories. <laughs> there are what are known as the Nitya Siddha beings and the Nitya Badha beings. Nitya Siddha means souls who have never known conditioned life. They've never known the material world of birth and death. They live eternally in the Paravyoma or the spiritual realm where life is not plagued by the various kleshas, um, unhappinesses of the world we know. Life there is characterized as satchitananda, eternal, fully self-aware and blissful. There are, within the constituent nature of each soul, there is the possibility for turning away from that nature. And I think I might have given you this example before. My spiritual master, Srila Prabhupada, described once, because I asked him, I said, why would anyone want to come here? If life is so beautiful in the spiritual world with Krishna, why would ever, what would compel anyone to come to the material world? And he gave the example of a wealthy person who eats lavishly every day because in the home there is a private kitchen with a chef and the meals are rich and, you know, scrumptious and, and... So one day that wealthy person might go to the chef and say, today would you mind just making me some chip rice? Now chip rice is what it sounds like. It's chipped grains of rice that fall to the bottom of the rice sack. It's a poor person's meal. They cost less to buy the chipped rice grains than whole grains. But sometimes because we enjoy variety, we may want to move out of that situation of opulence to experience a different kind of simplicity in our life. An extraordinary metaphor or parallel for why it is that certain souls would turn from that eternal realm to want to know what it's like to live in the material world. Instead of being content living with God, the curiosity arises, what would it be like to live like God? The material world is the arena for acting out the fantasy of being God. We come into this world in order to satisfy that curiosity for being ourselves the center of creation, the focus of attention. It doesn't work. So at some point along the trajectory of that experiment, the moment comes, described in the Vedanta Sutra, atato brahma jigyasa. Ata means now. Now meaning now that you've become so frustrated trying to find a perfect arrangement in an imperfect environment. Brahma jigyasa. Let's look for Brahman. Let's look for spiritual knowledge. Those souls who choose to experiment in that kind of an environment away from divinity need some place to go. That's the material creation. 
How does the material creation come about? Well, according to certain texts, in particular, the one that we're talking about just now is the Brahma Samhita. It's described that the Supreme Person manifests himself as Garbhodakshaya Vishnu. There are different Vishnus. There's first Mahavishnu, then Garbhodakshaya Vishnu, then Chirodakshaya Vishnu, different avatars or expansions of Krishna, the Supreme Person. The first is Mahavishnu, this gigantic form, larger than can be imagined, out of whom universes emanate like so many bubbles arising in the ocean. With every exhalation, this gigantic form of Vishnu exudes universes. So this is not the only universe. The environment we inhabit is only one of an infinity of universes. It's compared in the Chaitanya Charitamrita to a grain of mustard seed in a, in a bag of mustard seeds. That's how many universes there are. This is what it says in the ancient texts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are the descriptions so in, in the Sanskrit text. Yes, well, multiverses, yeah. Well, we're not going to go there today. We, we go there too often. <laughs> oh, yes, it's there. Every time I talk to my brother Brian, I say, yeah, yeah, it's there in the Vedas, and he rolls his eyes. <laughs> Into each of these universes, Vishnu then again expands. I have to make one small explanation here. Krishna himself has nothing to do. The descriptions of Krishna in the spiritual world are all about him as a cowherd boy, playing joyfully with his friends. God doesn't have any job that he has to perform. When there is necessity for some work, for example, creation, he expands, he manifests himself as Vishnu. And the Vishnu form has also different arrangements. Technically, you can tell which kind of Vishnu you're looking at by the placement of the objects in Vishnu's four arms. Vishnu carries four objects, identifying markers, a conch cell, a discus, a lotus, and a mace. And the, the, according to the positioning of those four elements, you'll know which particular Vishnu expansion uh, is, is present. When Krishna manifests in Vishnu form for the purpose of creating these universes, he enters into each and every one of the universe as the soul of the universe, Garbhodakshaya Vishnu. If you imagine the universe, according to the Sanskrit text, the cosmology is like this. Imagine a coconut shell half filled with water. Garbhodakshaya Vishnu lies down on the surface of that causal ocean, on Sheshanaga, a thousand-hooded serpent, who is also an expansion in the spiritual world of Krishna's brother Balaram, but we'll get into that some other time. On this celestial couch of Sheshanaga, Garbhadakshai Vishnu is in Yoga Nidra, kind of yogic rest. At his feet sits the goddess of fortune. From the navel of Garbhadakshai Vishnu, a lotus flower sprouts. And this lotus flower grows and grows and grows until it manifests its world. Now remember, at this point, the universe is still unfinished. It's in a kind of rough stage. 
half filled with the Garbodoc Ocean, the, the planets and universes uh, and, 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 and galaxies whirling in the top half of this enclosed coconut shell. But nothing is finished yet. Planets have not yet been set in orbit. Life has not yet populated the planets. From the whirl of this lotus flower emanating from the navel of Garbhodakshaya Vishnu, Brahma is born. And this occurs in every universe. The first created being is Brahma. He is known as Adi Kavaye, the first poet. Adi meaning first. Why poet? For the following reason. Brahma in our universe, by the way, has four heads. Why four heads? In his confusion as he was born and opened his eyes and everything was obscure, he couldn't see anything. He looked around, wondering, where am I? And what's this lotus flower I'm sitting on? And in his confusion, his heads were going around and around and he generated four heads. Now, therefore, he's known as Chaturmukhi, four-faced Brahma. In some universes, there are Brahmas with a hundred heads, with a thousand heads, with a million heads. The cosmological descriptions are breathtaking. Our Brahma has a modest four heads. He's looking around, not knowing who he is, why he's here, what has happened, and decides, well, there's only one thing to do. I've got to go down the stem of this lotus flower and see what I can find. He descends that lotus stem, going through different planetary systems, and reaches almost down to the navel lake of Vishnu. But you cannot reach God on your own. You have to be introduced by God's devotee. Brahma did not have someone to introduce him to Vishnu. And therefore, he could not reach all the way down to the bottom. And in despair and disappointment, he turned around and started climbing back up the stem of that lotus to again sit perched on the whirl of that flower. And as he emerged, he heard the following sound, tappa, tappa, he heard it twice. Tappa is short for tapasya, meaning a kind of what? Penance, yes, a penance, a sacrifice, give something of yourself. So Brahma took this clue, sat down, and instead of going outward, he went inward and began a deep meditation for a thousand celestial years. And at the end of that meditation, by dint of his sincere self-sacrifice, the layers of that coconut shell, which are ten in number, ten elements, each one ten times thicker than the next, parted. And the expanse of the spiritual universe was revealed to Brahma. That celestial vision of the eternal realm was so moving to Brahma that he began to cry. And in his ecstasy of this vision of the spiritual realm, he composed a poem. Now originally this poem, poem called simply Brahma Samhita, or the prayer of Brahma, Adi Kavaye, Brahma, the first poet, Adi Kavaya. These hundred verses have been lost over the course of cosmic time. Only one section, in the, from the fifth section, fifth chapter, if you will, of these verses, was discovered in a South Indian temple by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the early 1500s. As he was on tour of South India, he went to one of the temples, and in that temple, 
there was this ancient manuscript, perhaps the only copy of this one section of the original prayer of Brahma in existence. When he realized what he had, he swooned and went into ecstasy. When he revived, he told his disciples who were with him, you must immediately make copies of this and make sure that it is spread. And that is how the Brahma Samhita, the first poem of creation, worked its way into the Vaishnava literature. Some millions of years later in London, <laughs> George Harrison turned to us <laughs> and said, you know, we've had such good success with the Hare Krishna mantra, we should make a whole album out of it, don't you know? And so he asked us to suggest some other songs. Well, one of the songs that was proposed was what you've just heard, the Brahma Samhita. And he invited us to Apple Studios and we recorded this song with George producing. And I don't know whether you noticed it, but the end of the song swells. It's a little bit hard to hear how beautiful the production is on this sound system. If you have a really good sound system and you listen to this recording, it just continues to grow. Symphonia, the same orchestra that did the end of Hey Jude. Na, 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 just swells and swells. It's the same orchestra <laughs> doing the end of the Govinda prayer on the Radha Krishna Temple album. And it's quite, quite marvelous what he did there. The reviews that came out uh, when the album was released were very complimentary of the musical arrangement of this first prayer, this first poem in creation called the Brahma Samhita. Okay. Any questions about that? <laughs> I first heard this story at the American Center for Students and Artists, where my Vartma Pradarshana Guru, Vartma Pradarshana Guru means the person who first introduces you to Krishna consciousness, Bhagavad Umapadu, was telling this story to a very dear friend of mine who be, also became a devotee around the same time. His name was Hampar Terhanyam from, from Tehran. His initiated name is Hari Vilas. And I was just listening. And Hari Vilas and I were students at the Sorbonne. And Hari Vilas is sitting there, just stroking his chin and hearing this incredible, awesome story about how lotuses and Brahma, the first prayer and everything. And so Imapati finishes telling the story and Hari Vilas's head is nodding like this. And he's thinking, he says, well, if that's true, it's far out. <laughs> that was a rather astute observation. Um, so now you know the background to the prayer that we use during the art ceremony. Yes, Jai?
<laughs> there are lots of stories. They go on and on. That's the lovely part of this, is that in the Vedic culture, one story will lead to another story, will lead to another story. That's why usually when you have these kinds of gatherings in India, it's not just for an hour and a half. It's for seven days and nights. <laughs> called Bhagavat Saptas. You know, people come together literally for a week, and they'll, they'll be there the whole time, and people bring prashadam, and you know, kids are running around. <laughs> so, Yes, Michael. Now, because Brahma has, uh, is the creator, he has attachments, that's why he's not worshipped in, in Vedic culture, is that correct? Well, Brahma, Brahma worship as a tradition has pretty much faded into history. Right. Um, but Brahma is honored. In fact, he's honored in the Bhagavad Gita. Abrahma bhuvana loka punar avartanarjuna. Krishna tells Arjuna, the very highest place in the universe is Brahma's planet. But from that planet all the way down to the lowest planet, all are places of misery where repeated birth and death take place. Even Brahma eventually has to die. His life is very long. He lives for millions of years by earth calculation. But even Brahma eventually has to die. He has I was told because he has attachment to the material world, and that's why. Well, he's a pure soul who had this one desire, which was to create. He had a creative impulse. And so he had the opportunity. The, 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 Brahma is actually a post. It's not an individual person, it's a post. And that post is occupied by different souls. So the soul who occupied the post of Brahma in our universe is the Brahma who created the prayer, the poem that we sing during the Arti ceremony. And that's, if you will, a, um, a reward by Krishna to this very, very elevated being whose only desire, the one, if you will, anchor to the material world was this desire to create. And he did, he did a wonderful job of it, but I'll, I'll extend the story. Thank you, Jai, for the impulse. Just uh, one more dimension to the story. <laughs> Brahma creates this prayer where he's, he's expressing his wonder and and delight over seeing Krishna in the eternal realm. Govinda Madi Purusham Tamaham Bajami. He's describing what he's seeing in the spiritual world. This is a first hand eyewitness account of what it looks like in the eternal realm. Angani Manti Pastyanti. The prayers are there, and I urge you to, to read the prayers in the translations. It's extraordinarily beautiful. Uh, description of Krishna who is wearing a garland of flowers, his hair sports, he sports a peacock feather in his hair, his eyes are shaped like lotus leaves. Um, Krishna is often compared to the lotus. Things on Krishna are tapered, his hands, his feet, his eyes, they're tapered like, like lotus leaves. And Brahma is describing all of this in his ecstasy. And finally, Krishna appears to him, comes before him, takes his hand and says, I'm so pleased with you. I'm so delighted. Thank you so much for your devotion and for this beautiful prayer. Now I wish to give you a favor. So let me fulfill your desire. You are now entrusted with the task of completing creation. 
You will populate the planets. You will set humanity in motion. You will set the stars and galaxies spinning in their orbits. And Brahma's thinking about this and he says, my dear Lord, thank you for this great gift, but I have one concern. How will I avoid getting puffed up? How will I avoid being proud? You're making me the creator divinity in this world, in this universe. Everyone will worship me. How will I avoid the sin of pride? So Krishna says, I'll give you a hint. Do it in such a way that nobody knows it's you. Isn't that nice? says something, too, about the way we might conduct ourselves. Do your work with some humility. Whatever the work is that you have to do, don't do it so that others... Can, can I confess something to you? <laughs> I was a great dog earlier, right? You know great dog over on University Place? No. You got great, great soy drinks and, you know, vegetarian and vegan this stuff there. So, I wanted to put a dollar in the tip jar. This is so embarrassing. I waited until the service person was watching. How many of you have done this? Right? All the time, right? Why? You want them to know what a great guy you are, don't you? <laughs> well, the next time you might just catch yourself doing that, let that go. Let that go. Do your work in such a way that people don't even know it's you. Do your work with humility. Excuse me? Oh, very good. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You're old school. That's right. The tip is placed under the plate. That's right. Thank you. I haven't seen that done in a long time. <laughs> but that is the way it was done. That's correct. It was all very, very discreet. You never handed somebody money. You didn't do that. The very least you'd put it in an envelope. There'd be some courtesy, some formality there. It's like, here's a buck, you know, no. You do that here. Yes, that's true. So this was Krishna's answer to Brahma's concern about getting, becoming proud over having this great position. So the material world seems to be going on mechanically. Actually, there's a divine hand behind everything, but you just don't see it. <laughs> okay. Um, a few things. Does everybody have a vocabulary sheet? John, nice having you back. Wonderful to see you. Do you have one of these? Okay. Uh, you have some there? Okay. I want to go, go through this with you. And we're going to get a little rough now, guys. You have a homework assignment. You're going to learn four words from this vocabulary sheet for next Tuesday. Okay? Hmm? Anyone else need one? Okay. You're going to take the first, we're going to take the first four words, and your homework assignment is going to be to learn these first four words on your Gita vocabulary sheets for next week. And they're going to be, there'll be a spot quiz here, so be prepared. Let's go over those first four words together. Acharya. These are just in alphabetical order, and it's an arbitrary list. I'll, I'll grant you this. This is, this is my choice of what I think are the basic terms that you need to know if you're going to understand the Bhagavad Gita. Right? 
So we're going to kind of double up a little bit on our practical understanding of the Bhagavad Gita. We have these del delicious, luscious conversations every week. You know, kind of like we luxuriate in these, you know, yummy, kind of personal, how is the week for you kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and that's terrific. But I owe you, I have an obligation to you as well, which is you come here, you're entitled to learn something about the Bhagavad Gita. All right, first word on the vocab vocabulary sheet, acharya. The definition is teacher by example. Here's, here's the kicker, though authorized by an established disciplic line. This is described in the uh, opening verses of the, um, the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Sixth chapter, fourth chapter, rather. So the chapter that we're in. <clears throat> where Krishna describes for Arjuna, imam vavastrate yogam praktavan aham avyayam vivasvan manave praha manor ikshakave bravit I instructed this imperishable science of yoga to the sun god, Vivisvan, and Vivisvan instructed it to Manu, the father of mankind, and Manu in turn instructed it to Ikshaku. Then in the second verse, evam parampara, here's this word, parampara, evam parampara praptam, imam rajasayovidu, sakalenaha mahata yoga nashta parantapa. This supreme science was thus received through the chain of disciplic succession. And the saintly kings understood it in that way. But in course of time, the succession was broken, and therefore the science as it is appears to be lost. An acharya, a true spiritual teacher, in the traditional sense of a spiritual teacher. I'm not talking now about contemporary yoga culture in America, which goes by different kinds of rules. But in the tradition, the high tradition of India's spiritual culture, a true teacher, an acharya, someone who not only gives good instruction, but embodies those instructions. This is described, I believe it's in the Brihad Narada, Brihad Naradiya Puran. I believe that's the source of this verse. Savigyanartam sagurum eva abhigachet. Samatpani Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam. These are the two qualifications of a guru. Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam. Shrotriyam comes from the word Shruti. Shruti means the revealed text, the revealed scriptures. So a, a, a true acharya, someone who teaches by example, speaks what has been described from revealed texts from the dawn of time, as described here in this fourth chapter. Evam parampara pratam. The parampara successum succession is a college of teachers. So from teacher to disciple, that disciple then becomes teacher, from teacher to disciple, down through the generations, if you will, and going back all the way to the dawn of time. As we're learning here, Krishna spoke first to the sun god Vivaswam at the dawn of the universe. So Shrutriyam, Shrutriyam, one who is learned in Shruti, spiritual knowledge in succession. Brahmanishtam, as important, you've got to walk your talk. That's an acharya. Acharya means teaching by example. Not just by precept, but by your own life. I have no right to sit on this, you know, it's usually a cushion, but I've got <laughs> yoga blankets here. I have no right to sit here if I can't be an example for you by my behavior. If I cannot teach you by how I live my life, 
I really don't have the right to sit here and teach you precepts. So I don't claim to be a very advanced devotee. We're all beginners here. But these are the two qualifications of an acharya. So this is the first word on the vocabulary. Any questions about acharya? Anything that comes to mind that you might like to ask how an acharya is different from other kinds of teachers or anything at all? This is the time to do it. Yeah, Ron. Kisha Acharya? I'm not sure. I don't know. No, I'm not sure what the word means. I had a question. Um, yeah, this is Josh, by the way. Uh, new guest here. Welcome. Acharya, is it someone who is so immersed in what he's doing that he's not aware of himself? Oh, my gosh. What a wonderful question. Is the Acharya someone who is so absorbed in... How do you describe it? In what? In, the, in, what, in, that, in what he's doing. That he's not aware of himself? From Is that, the outside. From the outside. From what I know, like a bit of a Western perspective, and how yeah. people evolve is you have to look at yourself from the outside, but uh, if you take something like flow or other states, uh, yeah. when a person is so into what they're doing, they're so proud of them. Yeah. So <laughs> it's marvelous. Thank you. That's a beautiful question. Um, using, again, the coconut as a metaphor, there are two kinds of coconuts. <laughs> One that's still fresh, and if you shake it, you hear the milk, right? That's how you buy your coconuts. You want to have the juice in it, so shake it. The other kind is a coconut that's dried up, and the fruit has detached from the shell. So when you shake it, you're not hearing the milk, you're hearing, you're hearing the fruit that's detached from the shell. A jivan mukta, or if you will, an acharya who has reached that level of self-awareness to the point where he or she is oblivious to the material circumstances around us. is like the coconut where the material desires have dried up and the fruit has now detached from the shell. In the sense that someone can be a self-realized being living still within this body not distracted by the pulls of the gunas, the, the allurements of the senses. And in that sense, not exactly oblivious to the world, but not controlled by it. It's possible that someone on such a high level of spiritual realization may go into a kind of samadhi, a trance of remembrance of Krishna in the heart. And at that moment, they can become like a madman and truly oblivious to the world around them. So if you're thinking in terms of that kind of an example, that happens. But the, the Mahabhagavata, I'll describe this in a second, three stages of such realization. There's the um, beginner stage, an intermediate stage, and then the very advanced stage. The very advanced stage is um, not practical. <laughs> Good, that. that life of being so absorbed in, in the vision of Krishna, the, the vision of the divine, the supreme person, is so overwhelming, you can't get any work done. Therefore, Certain great souls who have achieved that kind of level of realization that you're talking about, 
voluntarily choose to step down to the Madhyam Adhikari plane. There's Kanishta Adhikari, Madhyam Adhikari, and the, this very advanced stage. Right? Madhyam, or middle plane, is where the advanced devotees will come down to so that they can be of some practical value to people. Srila uh, Prabhupada, on occasion, would go into those moments of, you know, the Uttama Adhikari place, you know, that, that place where he was so absorbed in his love for Krishna that nobody would know around him what was going on. He would start talking. I remember one time his secretary, I wasn't there, but his secretary told me this was in, in India. I don't remember what, it might have been in Mayapur. I'd have to check my notes on this. He was standing on the balcony of his room, looking out, and he started to go into a trance and describing the gopis who were there walking to see Krishna. They were going, they were running to see Krishna. And the secretary looked out and all he saw, there were some women there, but they were, they had grocery baskets and they were just walking home with their groceries. And Prabhupada was seeing gopis running to Krishna. And, uh, and then a, minute, a moment or two later, he kind of came out of that reverie and looked at his servant and kind of smiled and chuckled a little bit and then walked away. There were other times he'd be sitting on his uh, Vyasasan, the seat that he would have when he would go to visit temples. And um, <laughs> the kirtan would be going on, we'd be chanting Hare Krishna and uh, he'd get an expression on his face it almost looked like he was in pain. <laughs> you know, the, the ecstasy was so deep and he'd be crying profusely. And then he would stop himself. He would kind of blink and come back out of it and look around as though he were seeing how everyone else is doing, you know, and play his cartels. And, but then, you know, his, his head would start shaking like this, back and forth, back and forth, with his eyes tightly closed and the tears streaming down his cheeks. So there were moments like that. For the most part, though, the Uttama Adhikaris will come down to the Madhyam Adhikari plane and you won't see that kind of behavior because it, frankly it can be frightening or confusing for most people to see that. Is Wonderful there, question. Yes. Thank you. Is there ever um, something Does that behavior not manifest, but it floats through one's being? Well, I mean, not in a physical world, where that actually can be seen, but um, it's somewhat like a path of least resistance, where um, in a way it's like laughter. I mean, if you have tension, you release it with laughter. But <clears> if you hear something very funny and you don't have any tension to begin with, you feel the full mm. laughter sensation without any behavioral. Uh, if, if I'm understanding your question, and again, you're asking very good questions. The closest I can come to an answer for you would be to say that devotion is more or less grouped into two kinds. One is called Vaidhi uh, Bhakti. Uh, uh, Vaidhi Bhakti means practice. What we do here in this Bhagavad Gita gathering is Vaidhi Bhakti. This is we're practicing. We're practicing how to do the arti ceremony. 
We're practicing how to recite the mantras. We're practicing the verses from the Bhagavad Gita. We're studying the vocabulary. This is in a in a in a uh, a student of bhakti fashion, right? If we rise early in the morning and chant on our beads, it may not be because we're really feeling it, but because this is what the prescription is for coming to a higher stage of devotion. So it's by practice. When that practice matures into enthusiasm, enthusiasm for performing devotional practices, it becomes raganuga bhakti. Raganuga bhakti means spontaneous devotion. Spontaneous devotion, I think, is what you're talking about, where you don't have to think about it. You're just doing it. You know, we chant on our beads because we're supposed to chant a certain prescribed number of mantras every day. A pure soul, so a Raganuga Bhakta, doesn't need to count how many times he or she is chanting. The chanting is going on constantly. It's always there on their tongue. That love is bursting forth at every moment. Everything they do is an act of devotion. I'll never forget the first time I saw Srila Prabhupada. The very first thing I saw him do convinced me this is a pure devotee of Krishna. He was sitting on a, on a seat like this with his hands on his knees. He had just come from Moscow. I was, this is the first time I saw him. His a secretary opened the door and said, Srila Prabhupada, should I let them in? I peeked around the corner. This is the first time I ever saw my spiritual master. I peeked around the corner of the door to see him. And this is what he did. I'll have to describe this for those of you in podcast land. He raised his hand and did a sweep in the air, like a 180-degree circle with his hand, as though, let them come in. It was like Rudolf Nureyev or Barishnikov or, or somebody. And it was just this perfect move. There was no wasted energy. There was no frenetic movement, nothing at all wasted. It was the first perfect thing I'd ever seen. And it was just a gesture. What it said to me was, this person has total control of his body. He's not even thinking about it. It wasn't contrived. It wasn't an egotistical gesture. Like, they may come in and see me now. There wasn't any ego in it. It was just a perfect move, a perfect wave of his heart. My understanding of what it means to be enlightened is like that. It means everything you do is done with intent for the purpose of pleasing Krishna. When every word you utter is a glorification of Krishna. That's the perfection of your pranayama breathing. When every movement of your body is an offering of love to Krishna, that is the perfection of your asana practice. Any other questions about this? First, we got three more to get through. To <laughs> okay, second word, ahankara. All right. 
in, in a nutshell, th this, is, this, is, this is where we're at. <laughs> this one word pretty much sums up our situation. How are we doing? doing right. SAT's coming along? Yeah. Good. Good. Excellent. Good show. Uh, ahamkara uh, means identification with the physical self, both gross and subtle. There are different coverings called sushumna. There is the physical body, and then there is the subtle mi mind, intelligence, and ego. These two sheaths or coverings house the eternal atma or soul. When we spend such time within those coverings that we begin to think, this is me, when that mistaken identification with the body and mind takes place, that is known as ahankara. That is the material conditioning. And all dilemmas flow from that initial misidentification of ourselves with the physical body and the subtle mind, intelligence, and ego. This is described in, Va in Bhagavad Gita. Ahamkara vimudatma kartaham iti manyate. The bewildered soul is traveling from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime, identifying with the physical housing around us. And that is the starting point of, of all distress. Now, here's the mistake that a lot of people make. They think that, oh, well, I'm the eternal soul, therefore, therefore aha, Thank goodness, I don't, I don't have anything to do anymore with my body. I don't have to deal with my family anymore. I don't have to take care of things anymore. That's a kind of naive indulgence. <laughs> Just knowing that the mistake is identifying with the body should not be used as a pretext for neglecting our responsibilities in this world. That's a big error. I made that mistake. A lot of people I know from the 1960s made that mistake. <laughs> because we thought, now we're spiritual. Oh, groovy man. And that means what? That means we leave our families, we move into temples, ashrams, communes, farms, whatever. You know, grab your beads and let's just go for it. That's perhaps, you know, exciting youthful exuberance, it's not particularly mature thinking. Mature thinking is, okay, now I understand this. What is the proper use of this body? What is the proper use of my mind, intelligence, and ego, by the way? Please, folks, how many of you take yoga class? Right. How many of you have heard this, let go of the ego? Anyone ever hear this phrase? Okay, don't believe it. You cannot let go of the ego. Ego means self. What we strive to let go is the false ego, the misidentification with the body and mind and all of the labels that come with that. Letting go of ego does not mean dissolving away into nothingness. 
It means recognizing what are the misidentifications so that the true ego can emerge. That's what letting go of ego means. It doesn't mean you dissolve into nothingness. It means that you allow the temporary coverings to move aside so that you begin to act from the place of pure eternal ego. That's the Atman or self. And that never dissipates. The entire second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, as Michael can now tell you because he's written an essay about it. The whole second chapter of Bhagavad Gita is how the soul is permanent, unchanging, cannot be destroyed, cannot be withered by the wind, cannot be cut by any weapons, cannot be burned by fire. I mean, Krishna goes to this extent of giving specific examples of how indestructible you are, how immortal you are. Moving from that place, that's really good. Okay? Yeah, Mike. We're taught here that letting go of the ego is letting go of that, like, what they call the little ego, the I'm hungry, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm horny, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, the, the selfish little person inside of me, and to move into the bigger, greater ego of compassion for all people and all beings. We're going to talk about it tonight. Where be enlightened, you need to have compassion. And that's the letting go, is letting go of the selfish self and opening up to the greater heart. All right, here's where I start getting into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> How are you going to move it to compassion if you don't know why you have a little ego? How can you become compassionate as long as you are still feeling hungry, horny, whatever? <laughs> Instead of ignoring those things and pretending that now I'm going to be compassionate which is a big facade it's a lie yeah. you can't do it Bhagavad Gita says know yourself well enough to understand where those impulses are coming from so that you can deal with them more effectively and once you start dealing with those challenges within yourself more effectively, then maybe you can begin to develop some compassion because you'll recognize these other people are dealing with their challenges in their own way as well. You don't jump from being a little ego into becoming, you know, Mother Teresa. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. Very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Why? Why would it be dangerous to jump too quickly into a place of compassion and love for all beings and what's wrong with that? Why can't we just start being compassionate? Why can't we just love everybody? Because you love yourself first. Huh? All right, that's one reason. What you'll on the other? Back, huh? You'll fall back. Ah, how long is it going to last? <laughs> You're going to be compassionate until it's time for you to go back to the things that really concern you. That's a very short-lived kind of compassion. Yeah. The more 
the answer is, and I'm kind of leapfrogging a little bit here, don't do anything artificially. Right? The desires are there. Acknowledge them, first of all. Don't be ashamed of them. Don't be embarrassed by them. That's a tragic mistake. Tragic mistake. If you are experiencing desire within yourself of any kind, whatever it may be, to ignore that or to judge it or to look down on it as though it's some kind of a defect within you, my goodness, what a, what a terribly um, sad reaction to being a thinking, feeling person. Where the meditation takes place is not on moving away from all of that. Somehow it's going to magically disappear. But by a contemplation of where do they originate from? What is this source of those desires? Why am I having these impulses? What is it that's compelling me to behave in a way? This is a question that Arjuna asks Krishna. Arjuna asks the same question of Krishna in the sixth chapter. He says, how is it, sixth chapter or is it fourth chapter? It might have been this chapter. What is it that compels us to act against our own best interests? I'm hearing what you're telling me, Krishna. I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and I understand the wisdom in it. And yet, still we behave in ways that are contrary to our own best interests and stand in the way of us getting what we really want. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? So even Arjuna is conducting the same exercise, if you will, by saying, what is it, what's happening inside me that's moving me in a way that's contrary to my own deepest wish to be a truly spiritual, good person? Right? So it starts with a meditation on those desires, not ignoring them, but considering where they come from. Right? It's a longer discussion but it's to say that you're asking the absolute right question. How do we differentiate between them? Between, uh, you're saying, was you placating them and really understanding them? It's a beautiful question. Short form answer, continue chanting, watch your diet, continue reading Bhagavad Gita, keep in good company, be careful of the company you keep, be careful who you hang out with. The more you refine the habits and patterns of your life, the more that kind of extraordinarily beautiful and important questioning will clarify itself. You're not going to have to make any kind of forced effort to understand the difference. It'll begin to manifest of its own. It's a short form. Yes, Joshua. I'm sorry, would you speak up just a little?
and you remember that, it triggers a feeling when you repeat the rice and you can eat that rice for 10 years and imagine it's any other food. It's an interesting example. How can you keep them down on the farm once they've had fruit in the palace? <laughs> oh, no, right. not like that. I'm saying that the idea that the food is triggering the feeling you want, I always understood it as we make contact with ourselves that if I eat this grape, I will allow myself to feel this feeling. Um... <clears throat> It is, there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, um, uh, the last line is, Param drishtva nivartate. It's possible to maintain interest in those fruits without becoming overwhelmed by the urge to always have them by gradually transferring, the operative phrase here, gradually and naturally transferring your interests from lower tastes to higher tastes. That doesn't mean from rice to fruit in the palace. It means the self-interest of becoming a fulfilled spiritual being. Even though the taste for those material objects may remain. Swami Satchidananda used to say, don't try to give up smoking. Just do your yoga and gradually those other interests will dissipate of their own accord. The, the, the urge for more and more material satisfaction can be pacified and eventually go away by gradually and steadily cultivating one's inner Krishna consciousness or spiritual life. So, it can happen. Um, that, uh, I was figured the ego came out of if you have some sort of I'll tell you what hold on to your thoughts okay. think about it a little bit more so we'll give some other people a chance to yeah. offer comments or ask questions and if there are any other questions if there are no other questions about a hankara We'll move on to our third word. We're going to try and get through four words here today. Any other, any questions? Ahankara. What is ahankara, Michael? Are we doing four words of week? That means it won't take a year to <laughs> Well, we'll see. We'll see how long it takes. We'll see how long it takes. <laughs> you never know. You never know. It's all good, right? Okay. All right, third word is ananda. Um... This is a very misunderstood term. <laughs> this is a very, very misunderstood word. Ananda roughly, roughly translates as bliss. Roughly. I say roughly because um, <laughs> it's a word that's applied so often to so many things. Um, what's to be understood about bliss in this sense Ananda, uh, in its transcendent meaning as opposed to material pleasure, sensory pleasure, right? Ananda has nothing to do with senses of the body. Ananda is an internal state of consciousness. Your body can be in utter misery, and yet you can be in Ananda. 
You can be in extreme suffering and still be in Ananda. I'll give you one example. I'll tell you a little story. A very dear friend of mine who passed away from cancer was Bhakti Tirtha Swami. Bhakti Tirtha was uh, one of the most beautiful people I've ever known in my life. This handsome black devotee who graduated Stanford was um, an organizer for um, civil rights and had a very distinguished career as a Krishna teacher, particularly with um, Africa, African tribes, tribal people in Africa. He was actually anointed the king of a tribe in Africa for his services to the people there. Um, he and I were supposed to go traveling. This is a little bit of a sore spot with me. Uh, we were supposed to go traveling together, speaking to business groups about spirituality in the workplace. And I'll show you the brochure that we wrote together for this. And just as we were about to launch this program, he was diagnosed with cancer. And the cancer spread rather rapidly. They had to amputate a leg. They had to... By the time he was ready to die, he was so riddled with cancers that he was in more pain than I would care to describe for you. But he would be writhing. His, his body would be just writhing back and forth from the pain. And he refused painkillers. Um, Radhanath Swami sat with him during the last days of his life and read to him from very deep, beautiful passages of the Chaitanya Charitamrita and the Srimad Bhagavatam of the love of Radha and the gopis for Krishna. And um, <laughs> the tears would be streaming down Bhakti Tirtha's face. And at one point he turned to Radhanath Swami and he said to him with a big smile, and he was a Meshis, he hadn't eaten in days, so his body had shriveled. He turned to him with this big smile and he said, it doesn't get any better than this. Okay, time out here. He's writhing in pain. He's about to die from cancer and it doesn't get any better than this. That's because he had reached that place of Ananda where, as Josh, you were asking before, what was going on externally no longer mattered. He wasn't aware of it anymore. Ananda is the condition of the soul in union through love with Krishna. Ananda means the joy, the spiritual joy of knowing your eternal relationship with God. That is Ananda and nothing else. Ananda has nothing to do with feeling spiritual or feeling now I, I am the eternal soul. You can have some relief by knowing that you eternal, you're an eternal soul. You will not experience Ananda. That is not Ananda. Ananda relates to the personhood of the soul. Without understanding yourself as an eternal individual, you cannot experience Ananda. Spiritual bliss 
only occurs to those who have understood that they are eternal beings capable of exchanging love with the Supreme Being. That's where the Ananda comes from. So don't believe the advertising, please. You know, you know, you know we're having a kirtan jam tonight. You know, it's going to be a blowout. Come feel the Ananda. I don't think so. That's not the idea. Yes, can you reach Ananda through kirtan? Of course. But it's not, you know, because the bass player's on his form tonight. That's not what it is. It's the awareness coming to fruition that I am an eternal being and that my relationship with Krishna is inviolable. I love him. He loves me. I am his. He is mine. That's enough. Any questions about this? There's a lot of Anandas out there. Yeah. Um, Purnima. I think this is a really good point to bring up because what you're, trying, you're doing is to make a very clear line because in the yoginis of the world, yoginis, is that bliss is thrown around. So whenever I would read Satchita Nanda, I'm like, bliss. And then I actually ask myself, well, what is bliss? And I'm supposed to tell people they're going to have bliss? What about bliss with the Atma? What about bliss with God? How can I possibly tell people without their bliss because I don't know their experiences? But we have to understand what this word bliss is. What is really bliss? And, and I think that you've given me a really good concrete feeling for myself. Now, how to translate that so it doesn't sound mundane? Because the word bliss is used in every advert for yoga retreat. I've said bliss. Um, like you said, come to the gear talk, get blissed out. Well, blissed out is, you know, high. Right. Getting a high is not blissed out. This is the problem. We've all thought it's this. So, yeah. in the spiritual practice, like you said, that's not. There's no guarantee this could went to the kirtan that you're yes. really going to find satchitananda. Look, what, the, even the phrase you just used, satchitananda murtaye. Yes. Right, murtaye refers to form. Another way of saying that is satchitananda vigraha. That's from the Brahma Samhita. Vigraha also means form. The self, like Krishna, is imbued with form. You're a person, not just now in this material body. Why do you have this body? It's, it's like a glove. It's fashioned around the shape of the hand. The, the body is shaped because the soul has shape. You're not just a blob. <laughs> You're a person. It is that which is the glory of the self, that you are a person. Not just now, forever, eternally. You never disappear. You never dissolve away. You never become a non-being. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's impossible. The Atma is by nature indestructible. How are you going to dissolve something that's indestructible? Okay, I know. Yes. Say your name again. Samantha. Samantha, thank you. Um, I hear a, a lot of people saying the bob, come feel the bob. Come feel the bob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, I, I take that to mean the same thing, but I don't know, so I'm wondering what the difference is. Baba is another word for ecstasy. And, uh, yeah. The bob. The bob, yeah. Come get the bob. <laughs> bob, bob. Bob is kind of, it's an insider's term, right? It's like, you know. Yeah, like I'm really feeling the bomb tonight, man. <laughs> 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 I'm feeling the bomb. 
Um, yeah. Well, technically, bhava or bhava uh, means the the ecstatic feeling that you have prior to the real goal of your spiritual practice, and that's prema. Bhava is the preliminary stage to love. Love excels, exceeds, and defeats bhava. Because in love, there may be, there may be moments of extreme pain where you ain't feeling the bhava. Oh, yeah. Love includes intense suffering. But on the spiritual platform, that suffering is so extraordinary that you cannot imagine how fulfilling it is. The gopis, Mother Yashoda, all of these characters, these beautiful uh, eternal beings in the spiritual realm, we read the stories of how Krishna is making them crazy, you know, <laughs> driving them into the edge of madness, you know, and Mother Yashoda is getting angry at him, you know, why did you break my yogurt pots? Why did you do that? You know, she's angry at when Krishna is being carried across the river Yamuna by his uh, father Vasudev to hide him in the village of Nandagram so that King Kamsa won't kill him. Krishna, the baby, falls out of the basket into the roiling well waves of the river. There's a storm and the river carries the baby away. Nanda Maharaj, uh, uh, Vasudev nearly dies of anxiety because he can't get his child back. His child's going to drown. We cannot understand the ecstasy of that kind of anxiety. We think of anxiety. When we see anxiety, it's the very thing we're here in yoga school to get rid of. Right? right? <laughs> okay. In bhakti, it's exactly the opposite. Bhakti turns yoga whoop, right on its head. No pun intended. Yes, in fact, the spiritual world is called Vaikuntha, the place where there is no kuntha, there is no anxiety, no material anxiety, okay? Just as there is no material form to the soul. When, when you read these phrases in the revealed text, like in the Upanishads and the Puranas, that says, God has no form, the soul has no form, that means no material form, no form like we're familiar with. But there is spiritual form. Right? So just as there is no anxiety in the spiritual world, that means no material anxiety. But there's another kind of anxiety. Think of it, think of it as this extraordinary fulfilling yearning, this constant yearning to love Krishna more and more and more. There's an anxiety there, there's a stress, there's a tension that's utterly desirable, <laughs> utterly okay. Material stress and tension diminishes your life. It cuts down your lifespan. It will literally shave years off your life. Stress is toxic. It gets in the bloodstream. Spiritual stress is the yearning of the soul to serve Krishna more and more and more and more. And that is enthusing. That is energizing. And that's good for everybody. Difference between the material side of it and the spiritual side. Okay? okay, last word. Last word. We're going to get this in in the next six minutes. Archana. 
Okay, Archana is the scriptural system for worship of an approved deity. Notice the phrasing there, approved deity. Archana practice um, is also the uh, deity of Krishna on the altar. It's called the Archa Vigraha. The worshipable form of the divine in form. So you see, for example, in this painting of Radha and Krishna. This is an Archa Vigraha. It's described in the Bhagavad Purana. There are, I think, nine, six or nine forgetting now how many different elements can be used for the creation of a worshipable deity. There's marble, precious metals, wood, uh, even the mind. You can fashion the deity in the mind. That's the one that you carry around with you. <laughs> so uh, Archana refers to the authorized system of worshipping the deity, as we did, for example, at the start of class with this arti practice, of an approved deity. You can't just invent a divinity. Don't do that. Well, how do people do that? How do people do that? Like, you know. Huh? Yeah, that's, well, the original idol, you know, the golden calf is... Part of the original prototype imagined deity. Yes. Huh? The calf was. Um, okay, so the, the point that, I'm sorry, your name is? David. David. It's interesting. It, it's a good question for a philosophy class. Um, what if the golden calf is not recognized by Moses, but by the people of, 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 people of Israel, by the people who are wandering? They say, this is our divinity. Okay. Here's where we run into a rather one of the few black and white issues in terms of bhakti theology, which is that for anyone or anything to be acknowledged as authorized, that is to say, truly worshipable, it has to be from within the scriptural regulations. No one can just present himself, for example, as an incarnation of God. The incarnations are described in the revealed texts. For example, Krishna's universal form. Krishna revealed his universal form, proving himself to be the divinity in person, I believe five or six times. If someone wants to, be, wants to claim to be an incarnation, a very simple test, may I please see your universal form? Can you please show me the entire creation in one cosmic vision? And if they can't do that, then at least according to the Vedic texts, they cannot be accepted as an authorized incarnation. Similarly, for a deity or murti, archavigraha, on the altar, the example is sometimes given that if you want to send a letter to somebody, you have got to put it in a post box that's authorized by the postal department. You can't make your own wooden box, stick it on the side of the road, and put the envelope in there expecting that it's going to get to the destination. It's not authorized. The power of the tradition and the authority 
of revealed scripture has to be there just as the government approval needs to be there for that post box to be effective. So the deities are fashioned, installed, and worshipped according to very strict regulations. That's the difference between archana and idol worship. Archana is God-given and idol is man-made. We have time for just one last comment or question. So more Orthodox Jew, you know, um, studying the Torah religiously. The reason why the holding Catholic promise was so bad for the Jews is because it was during the age of prophecy for the Judeo-Christians. So we were in direct contact with God, Krishna, the supreme being. And every Jew on Mount Sinai heard God at every level. So God basically said, after we left Israel, God basically spoke to every Jew, and every Jew heard it was something like 6,000 6, or 600,000 Jews, from the most enlightened person to the most ignorant person, all heard God in their level. And then Moses went up, goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and he's up there for 40 days. And the Jews who just heard the word of God, lose faith in the fact that they saw God, and make the golden calf to go back to Israel, or to go back to Egypt. And Moses comes down and goes, what the hell, you just heard the word of God 40 days ago. I was gone for 40 days, you couldn't wait 40 days, and you made this false god because you had no patience, and then he throws down the Ten Commandments, and all of you that worship this false god died and steal from the city. I'm going to have to interrupt. Sorry. <laughs> Fascinating conversation, but we're going to have to pick this up at a different time. Please uh, take your notes, and we welcome to take these sheets home with you. And when we get together next Tuesday, I may call upon someone at random <laughs> and ask for an explanation of these four words. And we'll go over some other words as well. Maybe not next week, because it kind of fills up the day. Right. We were supposed to have a guest, special guest next week, and unfortunately, Swami Chidanand Saraswati is unable to come. There's a bit of an emergency uh, in India. There's flooding 
along the Gangetic Plain, and the dams are washing out, and people are being drowned and left homeless. And so he's had to go back to India in order to care for them. And so uh, he sends his apologies and his regrets that he's unable to come next week. But he will come at some point in the future. We'll have a chance to spend some time with him. So thank you all. Very nice. Lovely, lovely discussion. Good points. Wonderful questions. Um, let's finish with uh, the Omkara. And then uh, what do we have here? Oatmeal, pecan, cranberry cookies and grapes. You see all of you out there in podcast land what you're missing? friendship and for your deeply challenging questions and your insights into the history of Judaism. Mm -hmm. oh, 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 oh. <laughs> if you haven't signed into the sign-in sheet, please do. If you have an email address to sign your names, we just have a head count of people who come. All right. um, and also we've started a Gita Wisdom newsletter. We're starting. We're starting. <laughs> 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 the first one. If you if you if you'd like to receive it, you're welcome to just put your email down. And when will it do you think go out? Hopefully by the end of this week. By the end of this week. Okay. Thank you all. Have a cookie. Yeah. And get to meet some of your fellow Gita Jana.